Well, happy Father's Day to those to whom it applies. It's good to be back among you all this morning. The often prayed, and I mentioned to you all at some point uh, before, just the importance of not taking for granted that we can gather together. And uh, I'm grateful for the Lord underscoring that point over the past few months uh, when we were not able to gather together, and it's certainly good to be able to gather now. A lot has happened over the past few months, and it seems like uh, each week some new craziness unfolds. Um, I would like to make some more particular comments on um, some of the different issues, uh, uh, justice and racism. Some of those things are kind of hot topics. Again, um, nowadays, I would like to make some comments on those things. Providentially, we're going to be looking at a psalm next week that's going to deal with some of that. Uh, so I'll, I'll make some more particular comments uh, next week. This week, uh, as we know, we're going to be focusing on the family, focusing on Father's Day. Um, well, I know a dear brother in Christ who, like me, did not grow up with a father in the home. And that dear brother has always desired to be a better man than his father, uh, to do a better job than his father. He, pro- he promised himself that he would provide all the best for his children, that his children would not feel the same sense of disappointment and loss that he did waiting for his father to show up to so many events. So my friend worked hard and still works hard to provide the best for his children. He labors, he strives, he encourages them to pursue their dreams, and and he works to ensure that they can pursue their own dreams. He goes to every game that they play, he coaches whenever possible, does all of those little things, um, again, that he missed out on. Most of all, he's worked hard to provide a house, a place that his children can call home. Can you argue with that desire, with that Um, that purpose. Certainly much of what he has pursued appears to be aimed at material things, some physical things. The best job and working hard at that job no matter what in order to be able to provide the best things for his children. But if you think about it, that pursuit, um, that desire in his heart, like so many for him, represents a sense of stability, a sense of assurance, a sense of security that he can provide for his family. A stability, an assurance, a security that he never had growing up, but that he desperately wants to provide for his family. Again, can you argue with that? Can you argue with that desire that he has in his heart? Well, unfortunately for this brother, things in recent years have begun to fall apart. Certain choices that he made along the way, that his family has made along the way, has led to disaster, difficulty, great pain. The fabric of this picture of stability, assurance, security has been threatened at its core. He is in danger of losing all of it. And this dear brother, as he watches things start to crumble around him, is left wondering, how will I now be able to provide that stability, that security, the blessing of God for my family? Am I like my father? Is the question that he's asking now. Well, our psalm this morning gets to the heart of that question. How does one build their house? How does one build their family? How does one ensure that the blessing of God is experienced in their home? Turn with me again, if you haven't, to Psalm 127. As we're continuing our series in the Psalms, we're going to look at this short five verses. I'll read it for you this morning, and then we'll get into it. 
Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who, labor, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you again for this day. We thank you for your word, which is true. We thank you that you sanctify us by your word, which is true. Now, as we look to your word, I pray that you would guide us, that you'd help us to think correctly about your word, that you'd help us to have a listening heart as Solomon prayed uh, for himself, and God, that you'd grant us wisdom. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively would be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> well, Psalm 127 states that it's a song of ascents. It's a song of Solomon. That is, a song of ascents means that it is a song that would have been sung or recited as worshipers returned to Jerusalem for one of the many feasts or uh, holy days that they had. It, that is, a psalm of Solomon, Solomon means that it was attributed to Solomon as the author. That kind of makes sense. Some have classified this as a wisdom psalm as it provides the reader with truth for life. That's really what wisdom is all about. It's, it's truth for living well. It's being able to live skillfully in this life under God's heaven. Living life apart from God, or as if God is not, would be foolishness in biblical terms. This psalm addresses the man who desires to build his house and instructs that man as to how to wisely build his house in the context of God's world. Now, there are a number of other reasons to believe that this is made uh, written by Solomon. Of course, it does say that it's of Solomon. It is a wisdom psalm. Solomon was arguably the wisest man in one sense who ever walked the face of the earth, save for the Lord Jesus. He was also a builder. We know that he built the temple. We know that he built a massive home for himself. He beautified Jerusalem. It also mentions the idea of vanity. And that idea pervades the book of Ecclesiastes, which is also attributed to him. The word for vanity here is a different Hebrew term, but the point is essentially the same. It's also been noted that the term beloved at the end of verse 2 has the same root as the name that God gave to Solomon, Jedidiah, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So a lot of these different things point to Solomon as the author, and it just kind of makes sense as you read it. It is ironic, though, that the subject matter of building comes up in a Solomonic psalm. Solomon, again, was known for his building projects. He built all of those things. And yet for all of his building projects, neither he nor David did a stellar job building their families. In fact, we have many, many examples of men who did a poor job building their families in Scripture. Scripture is very real in that sense. It doesn't pull any punches, right? It's not like the Word of God paints this beautiful, rosy picture of God's people. It, it, it paints a picture of reality. As we've gone through the book of Genesis, we could certainly recount a number of different instances. I mean, we look at Adam and immediately think of his culpability when it comes to the fall, and we should. But what about after the fall? 
You ever think, where was Adam when his firstborn son was murdering his secondborn son? You ever think what that conversation was like? What about Isaac when Jacob stole Esau's birthright? Where was the discussion about how important it was to hold on to your birthright? And that soup was not more important than your birthright. Or the discussion about how important it was not to be deceptive, especially to your family members, to those whom you love. Again, where was Jacob when his daughter was taken advantage of? When did he console her? When did he counsel his sons about what a proper response would be? It is, again, ironic that Solomon, the great king of Israel, who had so much wisdom to give his people, so much wisdom to give the nations who sought him out, and yet his own son's foolishness was the impetus for division of his kingdom after him. He was wise enough, skillful enough to build great houses, but he did not build his own home well. Well, what do we see in this psalm? The central message of the psalm is that God builds the home through the proper instruction and dispatching of one's children. If you want to build your house, if you want to have a lasting legacy, men, it will not be found through the trails you blazed in your career, through the physical possessions you accumulated. It will only be found in your attention to the children that God has given you for a season and as you send them out for his glory. In terms of the structure of the psalm, We see two basic sections, verses 1 and 2. We're reminded that God is the builder of the home. And in verses 3 through 5, we see that God's way of building the home is through children. It's a pretty simple message. Well, let's look at that first section, verses 1 and 2 again. God is the builder of the home. Unless the Lord builds the house, it says, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early And go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Again, this is a wisdom psalm, so the purpose, the intent is to give instruction as to how to live wisely, how to live skillfully under God's heaven. He gives two broad sweeping statements of fact in these verses. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city, the assumption is that some are building, some are at work. Someone is trying to build a house. Someone is laboring to build a house. Likewise, someone is laboring to keep watch over the city. The focus in these two statements involve that concrete imagery of two locations, one's house and one's city. We often spend a great deal of time thinking about where we're going to live, right, both in terms of the city we live in and in terms of the actual residence, the dwelling that we live in. For the Montgomerys, the issue of where to settle has been a matter of ministry importance, We've moved from one city to another, from one home to another over the course of our married life for the sake of ministry. We've continued to rent instead of buy just because we wanted to stay flexible. We wanted to stay loose. We wanted to make sure we could move at any moment, especially if we were since we were looking towards missions overseas. Uh, Missions has always been in our hearts. But in recent years, we've realized that missions is just not in the near future for us uh, for a number of health reasons. Um. And we've kind of come to the conclusion this year that we want to show that we're content and we're grateful for where we are and that uh, we're, we're, we're digging into ministry here in this city. And so we're looking for a house here in this city. Um, and uh, I've I worked in banking for about 11 years. I was telling somebody this just a little bit ago. So I've been on the, the financial side of buying a home. I've never been on the buying side of buying a home. Um, 
And so I've seen the frustration from people on this side, but I've never felt it. So now that I'm feeling it, um, yeah, I'm starting to second guess a bit. But uh, if you guys see me curled up in a corner somewhere weeping, um, just, you know, it'll be okay. I'll, I'll, I'll get over it. Uh, but uh, we're grateful, again, for, for all of what the Lord has provided and for where the Lord has us. So I say all that to say that uh, the particular house where you reside and the city in which you reside are two significant considerations for a family, right? Generally speaking, these can be boiled down to two very basic life pursuits. You want a place to lay your head and you want for it to be secure. That's reasonable, right? Who can argue with that? Shelter and security. These are things you want for your family. These are things you want for your household. Now, Solomon is not saying that it's wrong to pursue those things. He's not saying that a man who desires stability, assurance, or security for his family is sin. That's not the point here. Pursuing those things is a part of what makes us men. Laboring for those things is a part of what makes us men. There is labor involved in providing for one's home. It's not easy. In the New Testament, Paul had to correct some men who were taking some time off, not working, sitting back and relaxing, perhaps because they thought that Jesus was going to return, so why work? What did Paul say? If you don't work, you shouldn't eat. Get up off of your butt and go to work. Get some things done. You need to provide for your family. There is labor involved in that. Men in leading their homes and providing for their homes should be about that. The world is rushing headlong to reject and redefine the clear distinction between manhood and womanhood, maleness and femaleness. But the word of God is clear on that issue. And we need to be clear. Men have, from the beginning of time and even today, continued to be driven for the desire to provide shelter and security for their families. And I want to affirm that for you today, men. That is good. That is right. We should, des- <clears throat> excuse me. We should desire that, and our families should expect that. <clears throat> now, again, Solomon is not saying here that it's wrong to have those desires to provide shelter and security. He's saying that it is in vain... <clears throat> And this idea for vanity, I mentioned already, has the same idea as the word in Ecclesiastes, even though the word is different. He says this idea is that it is empty, it's pointless. In the context of wisdom literature, if something is done in vain, it's foolishness. So while it's not wrong, it is foolishness to desire to build those things, to his point, apart from God. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city, those who build it labor in vain, the watchman stays awake in vain for emptiness. If the Lord is not in it, about it, if it is not done through him, in him, and for him, it is done in vain. It is empty. It is pointless. It will yield no good thing. It's foolishness. Implied in this statement is the fact that God himself works. God himself builds and establishes individuals, families, Even nations, we've seen that many times throughout Scripture. God works, God builds, but if he doesn't work and build in your life, in your family, then you are building, you are laboring in vain. And it doesn't matter how hard you work, it will not last. It will fall. We have a perfect illustration of that as we've been going through the book of Genesis in the Tower of Babel, right? All of humanity gathering together, pooling their resources together. We think if we could all get together in the world that it would be a good thing, right? They do this, and it completely flops, completely fails, because God was not in it. God was not considered. God was not consulted until he rejected their work. 
verse 2. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. He repeats himself for emphasis. It is vain. It is empty. It is pointless. It is foolish to pursue those things for your family, shelter and security, apart from the help of the Lord, apart from his grace, apart from his work on your behalf. I mean, what does it typically look like when men pursue those things apart from the Lord, right? What does he say here? We rise up early, we go late to rest, we're eating the bread of anxious toil. That is so descriptive. We could probably spend a whole sermon unpacking that statement. What do we see in the world today around us when we look but men indulging in the bread of anxious toil, rising early, going to bed late, grind, grind, grind. I mean, how else are you going to be able to provide those luxuries for your family, that your family desires, that your family deserves? No one else is going to give it to you. That American dream, you have to work hard for it, right? That's how we live. That's the expectation of our society. If you want to be something, if you want to provide something good for your family, if you want to make sure that your house is well built, that you're successful, you have to put the time in. You have to sacrifice. You have to put those long hours in, excelling your job, man, in order to be something. One author quotes another author, and you should never quote a quote, right? You should always go to the primary source. Well, I didn't. I'm quoting a quote, okay? So bear with me. It's a short quote, um, but one author here, as I was reading through a commentary, I thought this was interesting. He, he um, references David Platt, who said that our greatest asset is our own ability. That's the world's thinking. The American mindset, the American uh, dream uh, insinuates that our greatest asset is our own ability. And he says, out of this belief, we fall prey into two lines of thought, neither which are life-giving. And he goes on to talk about those things. But I thought that was interesting. That does really capture the world's thinking, that our greatest asset is our own ability. I'm the captain of my own ship. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I can achieve. I can do it. I can make it happen. I just have to work, 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 grind, grind, grind. We're taught to think that in order for your family to think you're something, you have to bring in the big bucks. In order to get your children all the things that you never had, you have to spend the majority of their formative years away from them in an office on the road, grinding along to make the big bucks. Or perhaps your wife needs to chip in to maintain the status quo. She should have a job too, right? You guys need to have like a certain level of comfort. So everyone in the family works. Everyone in the family gets worn out. And uh, eventually you'll be able to achieve your dreams eating the bread of anxious toil. The goal is to work hard, to get all that we ever wanted in life, but again, you end up missing so much of life, and in return, all you get is more anxiety about the present and the future. Am I making enough now? Am I working enough now? Do we have a large enough house? Do we have enough, a good enough car? Are they dressed in the best kind of clothing? If, if not, you need to do more. More, more, more. I remember my time working for a cable company, and um, that's about all that I remember, just working for the cable company during that time, because that's all that I was doing. Um, and it was, uh, it was about the time that my firstborn was around one or two years old. Um, but again, that's really all I remember during that time period. This was a very young, formative period of time for her, but I cannot remember it because I was working. And I didn't realize how bad it was until um, we got the one vacation that we had during that time period that um, I've talked about my friends in Alabama before. Uh, they actually provided for us. They 
paid for us to come down. They, they allowed us to stay with them um, when we visited. And um, my wife kind of cornered me <laughs> um, with them at some point and said, hey, we need to do something different. And she had been, you know, kind of taking, taking notes about everything that was going on, looking at our finances, writing down the number of hours that I worked, and it was like 60-plus hours for weeks in a row. And um, she said, we need to do something different. And they said, you need to do something different. So I said, okay, <laughs> let's do something different. But it was tough. It was a tough time. And I, I honestly, I don't remember it, and I regret that. And I won't get that time back. But it's like that, right? Eating the bread of anxious toil. I mentioned that little phrase, more money, more problems, to my kids the other day. And they looked at me funny, like, how could that be? How could it be that there's more problems if you have more money? It'd be great to have more money, right? But that's the issue. The more I make, the more anxious I am about losing it. The more anxious I am about getting more to maintain that status, that level. The more pressure I put on myself to advance to be seen as someone who did something for some company. While I'm eating the bread of anxious toil, my family sits on the sidelines eating the bread of loneliness, fatherlessness, because I'm not there. I'm away. I won't belabor this point too much longer, but think about those who have it all, right? Again, we talked about the biblical record. Adam was wanting for nothing, but look how his firstborn turned out. Isaac had the wealth of his father at his disposal, but look at Jacob and Esau. Jacob, after taking some hits from Uncle Laban, had a ridiculous amount of wealth. But look at what happened with his 12 sons. Why do we envy those who seem to have it all? Why do we envy those who seem to be making it? Well, the Lord offers us that good life. We look at them and we think they have the good life, but the Lord really does offer the good life, does he not? Look again at the end of verse 2. It says, for, the, for he, the Lord, gives to his beloved sleep. And the point is that if the Lord is not involved in your labor to provide shelter and security for your home, then it's all for nothing. The energy that you spend rising early, going to bed late, feeding your anxiety about those things is for nothing. You wear yourself out. And you could be resting in the Lord because that's what he gives to those who trust in him. You want the good life. It's not going to be found in that anxious toil, spinning the wheel over and over again. It's going to be found in trusting in the Lord, resting in him, trusting him to provide for you and your family. Making wise decisions so that you don't miss out on the important things in life. The Lord gives us sleep as a gift because he knows we're dust he knows that we're weak he knows that we can only do so much and he loves us because he's a good and gracious heavenly father we can rest because he never does Jesus in speaking on anxiety we already read in Matthew chapter 6 seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you right God takes care of us I like this other quote uh, in, in one author in thinking about Psalm 127. He says, Psalm 127 invites us to reconsider our lives and the work that has been placed in our hands. We are invited to depend on God and not ourselves. Surely the God who stretches out the heavens like a canopy is worthy of our trust. So long as we depend on ourselves, we are resigned to eating the bread of anxious toil.
That's really what it boils down to, right? Do we, can we trust the God who stretches out the heavens like a canopy? Who spoke the world into existence? Who upholds all things by the power of his word? Can you trust him? Again, man, the Lord builds the home. The Lord builds the family. Remember that, rest in that truth. The second half is how. How does the Lord build the family? He does that through children. Look again in verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. When the Lord builds the house, his focus is not simply on material goods. His focus is not merely on the establishment of a family in a particular city, in a particular dwelling place. The Lord's idea of building the house is much more expansive. The idea for house in Hebrew has a wide application through scripture. It could, of course, stand for a physical dwelling. It could also stand for a family unit, meaning your immediate family within your household. It could also stand for multiple generations of the same family, like when we refer to the household of David. I think the idea is somewhere in between those last two options, somewhere in between the immediate family and the family's influence in subsequent generations. How does the Lord build a house? How does he make one's house more effective for subsequent generations? He does that by expanding the family numerically and as the family members go out into the world for his glory. Look again at the text. The behold at the beginning of the verse is cueing us in on something big. It's an attention grabber. One of my language professors used to called this the looky here, right? Anytime you saw behold, he'd say looky here because that's just an attention grabber. Look at this. Pay attention to this. I have something important for you. What's the important thing he wants to say? Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Well, wait, weren't we just talking about building a house, securing a city? Again, the connection is that the emphasis on the house has more to do with family influence and physical location. There's another, this is another verse, this one, that, this one about children being a heritage from the Lord, an inheritance of the Lord, the fruit of the womb being a reward. This is another verse that we could spend a whole sermon on, just unpacking in light of our society today. The world sees children as accidental, as secondary, as non-essential. Some even go so far as to suggest that children are a burden, an afterthought, a matter of convenience, a choice based on how I feel at any given moment. But that's not the biblical view of children. That's not God's view. Children are a gift. It says here that they are a heritage. They're an inheritance. This is a gift given by a good creator. He gives children to men. They are an inheritance. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And this is not just for believers. This is for all people. This applies to all men. Children in general are God's gift to humanity. David makes that point in Psalm 17 when he prays for deliverance from wicked men. In verse 14 of that psalm, he refers to the men of the world whose portion is in this life. And what he means by that is that their portion from God and the good that God gives in this life. And he qualifies it in the next statement in that chapter. He says, men of the world whose portion is in this life, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their infants. Children are a gift of God to humanity. That's the point. This is perhaps more clear to those who are not able to have their own children in the flesh. It pains me to see so many in the world who so carelessly reject the fruit of the womb, the blessing of God, when there are so many who don't have that option, don't have that ability. 
Now, God does bless in many different ways. If you have sleep, for example, we saw in verses 1 and 2, and if you have children, you can never say that you've not been blessed by God. You can never complain that God has never blessed you, that God has never done anything for you. Conversely, not having children doesn't mean that you're not blessed at all. That's not the point. This point is for those who do have children and who fail to see the blessing of God in their lives because they're too busy grumbling over their lack in some other area. God has blessed you in some way if you have children. And getting back to the passage, to understand why he refers to them as a reward, meaning what value there is, we got to look a little further. Children are a gift from God. God in his goodness gives gifts to humanity, and the gifts that he gives are children. In the context of building a house, the contrast is sharp. Man pursues life without God and eats the bread of anxious toil in seeking to provide such things as shelter and security. When to the contrary, God gives rest and he gives reward. God provides these things to his people. Now again, what's so good about children? Why are they called a reward in that sense? Yes, they're cute and cuddly, right? They're sweet, um, but they're also incredibly needy. Sometimes they're a little wearying. They're whiny. They're troublesome. They're expensive. Um, at least those are the complaints of people in the world, not anyone in the church, right? Um, well, he explains in verse 4 what he means by calling them a reward. He says the children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Any warrior with his salt in antiquity would have been vicious with a pack of arrows and a bow. Those arrows would give that warrior the benefit of extending his fight more precisely hitting his target from afar. In battle, he doesn't need to worry about running up to a line of soldiers who are similarly outfitted with with swords on their hips, but he can hit his mark from afar. He can do his worst from afar. He can extend his reach in the battle from afar. These are our children in the battle of life. Again, the implication is that we're sending them out and that by sending them out, we're extending our influence in the world. He makes that clear as he moves on. We had a behold, now we have a beatitude. Verse 5, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. We see that same formula at the beginning of the book of Psalms. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked and so on. Again, Jesus uses his formula in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here, there is blessing for the man who fills his quiver full of children. If you want influence in the world, raise up your children well and send them out. He suffers no shame when he sits in the gate because because of his preparation and sending of his children were successful. The gate was the public meeting place where business and other legal affairs would take place. The picture here is clear. It is of the happinesses, the blessings of the one who has successfully sent out his children. His children have conducted themselves well in the public square, such that when their father sits in his gate, in the gate, his enemies have no way of shaming him. And the influence of his household will wield in society is incalculable. There's an applied, implied assumption here. The assumption is that the father has taken time to properly prepare his children before sending them out, Right? A battle, a warrior prepares his, his equipment, his armor, his weapons before he goes out to battle, before he engages in the fight. Likewise, if children are his arrows, the father would need to prepare his children to be sent out into the world. And that's really the biblical pattern. It's not up to society to prepare your children for life, nor is society equipped to. It's not up to the church in general to prepare your children for life. 
It may be better equipped in some ways, but it's not the role of the church. It is up to you families, it is up to you men to prepare your children to go out into the world for Christ's sake. In Genesis, we're told, we're given the command by God to be fruitful and multiply. God says, have children and send them out into the world. Send my little image bearers out into the world. In Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall diligently teach them to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. As you're preparing to go into this land that I've given you, Prepare your children to know my way so that they might represent me well as they go out. Ultimately, we find that same truth in the New Testament. In Ephesians, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but what? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up that way. Bring them up so that you can send them out having the same discipline and instruction of the Lord. Men, that is your job. That's your responsibility in the context of building your house. When you stand before the Lord, he's not going to care that you spent 60 hours at your job and you got a a reward for it, or you have a plaque on your wall. God isn't going to care about that. Obviously, it matters if you do your job well. Obviously, it matters to God if you are honorable in your work. But what's more important to him is how you cared for your family, your character and the time you spent in building your family for Christ's sake. And how you sent them out into the Lord, into the world. And the emphasis in Deuteronomy and Ephesians is on instructing our children in the Lord, meaning in the ways of the Lord, by the word of God. And again, to the point of this passage, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. If you attempt to raise your children and send them out into the world without equipping them in the Lord, it will fail. That's the point. It will fall. They will fail. And you may be wondering, what does this look like? What should it look like? How should you be instructing your children in the Lord? There's a lot that could be said here. I'll try to make a couple of a points, a couple of uh, points of application based on this passage as you're thinking about what it means to discipline your, to, to raise your children in a discipline and instruction of the Lord. Just a, just a few points here. Number one, teach them that they live in God's world. This is not your world. It's not their world. It's not humanity's world. It's God's world. We're under God's rule. He is a judge, jury, and executioner. He's the standard maker. He's the king. Teach them to submit themselves to his authority. Again, that's the essence of wisdom literature. And it all begins with the fear of the Lord. When children are very young, you teach them this by exerting your authority over them. I'm not talking about abuse here, but I'm talking about setting boundaries and providing consequences for them. They need to know that there are consequences for crossing boundaries. If they never know that as children, guess what? When they're adults, they won't live that way. They'll live as if there are no consequences. They'll live as if there are no boundaries. If children are allowed to do whatever they want, figure out things whenever they want, they'll never learn those boundaries. Second, teach them that life is not just about them. They're not the center of the universe. They should not be the center of your universe. Christ is. His glory is what matters. If they see you pursuing your own glory, again, spending countless hours away from the family to build your own personal empire, to achieve worldly success, to build and establish worldly possessions, then that's what they're going to learn is important in life. 
the whole world system is set up for that purpose, right? Go grow up, go to school, get a good job, work long hours, fancy car, nice house, finally settle down, have your 2.5 children, be a good citizen, retire to some far off way out vacation spot, get older, move into a place where your family, away from your family, and then just prepare to die. That's, that's the way of the world. That's a message we communicate to our children. But is that life? Where's the consideration of God in that? Where's the pursuit of Christ? There are children who need to be taught that God works on behalf of those whom he loves. Romans chapter 8, again, he works all things together for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. That excludes those who don't love him. That excludes those who are not his. Again, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who builds it. Children need to be taught that. Children need to be taught the difference between worldly success and success in the eyes of the Lord. The reality is that men and the women of the world are successful in a worldly sense. But we need to heed the words of Christ who said, What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Conversely, Scripture says, whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. Again, we're not the center of the universe. Christ is. Colossians chapter 1, it says that Jesus is the preeminent one. It says that all things were made through him and for him. How often do you have that discussion with your children as you're thinking about their future? How often do you remind them you have been made for Jesus Christ, for his purposes, for his glory? Christ died for you. He gave up his life for you. He did that so that you would be able to live for him. How are you going to live your life for him? We love to ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? What we should be asking is, how will you serve the Lord Jesus Christ when you grow up? Make that a priority. In an episode of The Briefing, Reverend Al Mohler recently spoke of the power of parents to define reality for their children. In the context, he was discussing how some parents were congratulating themselves, and there was a a newspaper article. These parents were congratulating themselves for letting their children decide their own gender, whatever in the world that means. And the hypocrisy in that is that in teaching them nothing about gender, about biological sex, and staying hands-off, letting the child figure out for themselves what gender there will be, parents are still teaching something. And not teaching anything, they're teaching something. They're teaching that it doesn't matter. That nothing matters. Again, that there are no boundaries. That the world is all about how you feel and what you think from one moment to the next. That you can live your life based on that, based on how you feel and what you want, what your passions are driving you toward from one moment to the next. And again, children who think that way and who are allowed to grow up that way will become adults who think that way and who run their lives that way, and who expect everyone else to bow down before that. And that's utter wickedness. I had someone confront me at some point, this was a number of years ago, asking why I teach the Bible to my children. I said just that, look, if I don't teach them anything, I'm teaching them something. And I love my children, so I want them to know what is true. And so I'm teaching them what is true, and what is good, and what is right, because I love them. I'm not taking anything away from them by not teaching them. I'm hurting them more than helping. If I stand hands off 
and let them figure it out. That's giving them too much responsibility that their little brains and literal hearts cannot handle. We ought to unapologetically seek to build biblical principles into our children's lives. Our greatest effort, our greatest energy, our greatest labor, men ought to go into our children, into bringing them up in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. Preach the gospel to them, equip them with the gospel, and then send them out for Christ's sake. That's been God's plan from the beginning. And it's still in force today. Paul makes a point in 1 Corinthians 15 on account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you're laboring in him, your labor is never going to be in vain. I'll just make a few more comments in summary and application of this to the church at large. We often hear these messages that are directed at a particular segment of our population, men on Father's Day, women at Mother's Day, etc., and we're tempted to check out and to think that it doesn't apply to us if we're not men or fathers. But because we are members of one another, I'll just remind you that when Scripture says we're members of one another, the point of that is to indicate our relationship to each other and not just our relationship to a building or our relationship to religion in general but we're members of a church because we're members of one another. We have a relationship with one another, so anything that applies to my brother should be important to me so that I can be a blessing and encourage my brother in that way. And so it still should be significant to all of us. Well, this passage is significant for us as New Testament believers in general because there's a greater house that's being built today. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 says that the builder of all things is God and that ultimately the house that God is concerned with building is his own. He's done that first and foremost through Jesus Christ. He sent servants in time past to engage humanity in these last days. He sent his son to complete this building project, this great building project. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're given a little bit more of a clarity of what this building project looks like. God is building his house, and in Ephesians chapter 2, it even refers to the church his house as his workmanship. And the word is poema. We get our idea of a poem from that. It's this beautifully crafted piece of work. God is crafting something great. God is, is writing out this beautiful poem to be displayed to the world. And you know what that poem is? The poem is the church. God is building his house. It's a house made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation and family on the face of the earth a people set apart for him, a people who are able to call him father. Again, I'll comment more on this next week, but the world is scrambling to express outrage over racism, to point the fingers at culprits and to call us to a greater unity, but the world will never find that kind of unity that it desires. It has no ability to create that kind of unity, that kind of acceptance, that kind of unity where we're all truly on one level playing field, where we're all equally humble before one another, where we all equally depend on one another, where we all equally love one another, will only be found in the church of Jesus Christ. That is God's work, wrought by the blood of Christ, shed on the cross for all, the forgiveness of Christ, given to all by faith, and the spirit of Christ indwelling all who are his. It is his kingdom, this house that we strive to build today, and men, to the point of this passage... We participate in that through the preaching of the gospel in our own homes. We participate in that great work of God to build his house as we bring up children of the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We ought to seek that as our greatest work, as our primary responsibility, to provide shelter and security for your home in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. Well, what's the answer for my friend who I mentioned at the beginning of the message? The one who seems to be losing all, all that he worked so hard to attain, the answer is that the work is not over. His job is not done. The house has not yet been complete. For his children still need to know the Lord. And while it would be great if we could bring up our children in a perfect world with perfect families where nothing terrible ever happens and they never experience pain, that's not reality. In this fallen world in which we live. And one of the best things that we can do for our children in the midst of great adversity is to teach them how to lean on the Lord through it. To teach them to cling to the Lord in it. That is a father's work. A father's work is not to be able to protect their children from every hurt, harm, and danger. It's not going to happen in this fallen world. But what we can do is we can point them to the Lord in the midst of it and walk with them through it. Perhaps you haven't been successful either in your worldly pursuits or in this area of raising your children and the nurture and instruction of the Lord so that they might be sent out for his glory. Well, it's not too late. The word of God is still true. His principles are still true. Repent from whatever you're running to before and make this your primary passion. Reorient your life towards Christ. Have a talk with your family. Say, look, we've been walking in the wrong direction. I've been walking in the wrong direction. Be okay with humbling yourself before your family asking for forgiveness if you've been going in the wrong direction. And turn and seek the face of the Lord. Confess your shortcomings. Trust in the Lord. Remember, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, and in me, you can do everything. Everything is, um, all things are possible in Christ. Perhaps you do not have children, or your children are grown up or out of the house. Find someone else to encourage in this area. Again, take them under your wing if you've been successful in that area. And even if you haven't been successful in that area, because, again, we can't control the faith of our children, you can still find someone to encourage who's coming after you, and in that way they can become your children in the Lord. I've told you again, I mentioned again my friends in Alabama, just because they've been so significant to us. Our mentors, the man has been like a spiritual father to me. He wasn't like a father to me because he led me to the Lord. He wasn't like a father to me because he looked like me or thought like me at all times. He wasn't like a father to me because he'd perfectly fathered his children. He admitted as much. All of his children were believers and are in ministry, but they weren't perfectly raised. They'll say that and he'll say that. But he was like a father to me because he took time to listen, because he took time to talk about their life, the good times and the bad. He took time to provide godly counsel, sometimes correct my crazy thinking. He loved on my children as if they were his grandchildren. I'll never forget his influence in, his, in my life. He's with the, been with the Lord now for a couple of years. And I hope and pray that my life in some way honors his ministry. But you men have the opportunity to be that kind of influence. To have an influence to build a house that will far outlast you, not by your own efforts in the world, but not by your own labors, but rather by making use of all of what God has provided, by depending on his grace, his truth, to help you to raise your children, whether they be physical or spiritual, for his glory in order to send them out. Men, embrace that. Embrace that truth. Pursue that truth. Christ died and rose so that as we pursue building his house through our children, we can be assured that our labor in him will never be in vain. Let us pray. Father and our God, we do thank you again for this day that you've given us, this day you've made. We thank you for being our Father in heaven. We thank you for your goodness, your um, provision to us. 
of so many good gifts, good and perfect gifts. We thank you especially for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the builder of your great house, of which we are a part through faith in him. Thank you that you have given us all things that we need for life and godliness, including the raising of our children. Thank you for rest. Thank you for children that you bless our homes with. Father, I pray for the men out there that you would help them to heed the words of this message, that for those who have children, whether they be physical or spiritual, that they take seriously the role of raising them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that they would father like you, that we would father like you. Raise up children and send them out into the world for your glory, for Christ's sake. We pray this in his name. Amen.